church. Thank you, David and Shelby. It's always beautiful to have you guys play for us as we meditate upon the Lord. Florida's got me in a sweater today. Uh, What's up? What's going on? 39 degrees when I got up this morning. Um, But, you know, I don't have to throw on a huge winter coat yet. Some of you are still wearing out here in the audience. Uh, It's going to take more than a year and a half to get the Midwestern out of me, I think. This, about this time, uh, every year, as a youth pastor in Iowa, I would be gearing up for two different retreats. One would happen at the very beginning of January for high school students. It was called Impact, because every conference has to have a cool name like that if you're taking them to the youth. The other one was a junior high trip, and that would have happened this upcoming weekend, and it's called Winter Blast. Again, really cool conference names. Um, Some years were better than others, but the kids always had a great time. They always had a great time, and I know many of them grew in their faith because of these conferences, these youth conferences. There would be just like hundreds of kids. Impact was at a hotel in Des Moines, which was a big deal for farm kids, okay? And then Winter Blast was at a camp, so a winter camp for, for junior hires where they got to run out all their energy uh, the conferences, though, always seem to follow the same exact pattern. Okay, I don't know if you've been to one of these conferences before, if you've helped lead one, or if you can think back to when you were in junior high or in high school. Friday night would be the first session, very energizing, very uplifting, really loud music, starting off the weekend on a really high note, and then right after that, all of the kids would just drink a lot of Mountain Dew and not go to bed until 1. Saturday morning after the caffeine-wired kids would finally fall asleep, uh, they would be a bit more subdued, okay? And so the Saturday morning session would be a bit more worshipful, a little bit less loud. And uh, I, I like to think of that message as the things are not as they should be message. That's the Saturday morning message. It would start to get the kids to think. It's always probably the best message, in my opinion. Saturday night, though, after a fun day of again wearing all the kids out, we'd have the big, important Saturday night sessions. And you you know what's coming, right? You know what's happening if you've been to one of these. This is the gospel message. The gospel message session, followed by a heartfelt and emotional altar call or hand raising, right? Every Every eye closed, every head bowed, no peeking, except the leaders who want to keep track. Saturday night, the kid, kids would once again try to stay up really late, as late as they could, which was usually not nearly as late as, uh, as Friday night, of course. And on Sunday morning, the conferences would always want to end on a high note. And this is where there'd be a little bit of like uh, disjunction because they try to have the same energy as Friday night, but the leaders are half asleep in their chairs and the kids look like zombies walking into the room. But this message was always the what are you going to do about it message, right? Like challenging the kids to take it home, which is always good. So, of course, after every session, each church group would gather into its own small group and discuss what the speaker had to say. The speaker would provide questions. Usually the questions were pretty good. And it would always almost happen, it would almost be that that was the best time of the trip. Every time. The small group time with the group would be the time when I'd see the most light bulbs turn on 
for kids, where I'd be the most encouraged, where we'd have the best conversations. But on Saturday night, after the big important gospel message, I'd always do something a little bit different. I would, I would not ask the questions that were handed out. What we would do is, we would open to Matthew chapter 13, and we would read the parable of the sower, which is exactly what we're doing today. So let's stand together, open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 23. Again, Matthew 13, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, like every week, we need you now to understand the word. We confess that we are unable to understand it apart from the Spirit of God who brings to light the truths of your word. We pray now that you would help us understand it, help us apply it to our lives, mold us and shape us by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The parable of the sower 
is a call from Jesus to understand the message of the kingdom of heaven. In verse 16, he calls the disciples blessed because their eyes see and their ears hear. That's shorthand for understanding. Chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew, where we spent several weeks, was all about the rising opposition to Jesus, of which he was well aware and which he addressed in that chapter. Last week, we looked at verses 38 through 50 of chapter 12, and we saw that there there were only two possible responses to Jesus, hard-heartedness or discipleship. Being outside the kingdom of heaven, being inside the kingdom of heaven. There's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. So chapter 13 introduces us to Jesus' third discourse or teaching section in the Gospel of Matthew. The first discourse, you'll remember, was the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The second was in chapter 10, the missionary discourse. This discourse in chapter 13 is often called the parable discourse, but all the parables have one thing in common. They're all about the kingdom of heaven. So the Sermon on the Mount, you'll recall, was the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. The missionary discourse was teaching on how to extend the kingdom of heaven and what to expect when you do that. And now here, chapter 13, is a description in word picture of the kingdom of heaven. Each of these parables, as we study them, is going to emphasize one facet of the beautiful gem that is the kingdom of heaven. And the parable of the sower starts us off. So in line with chapter 12, this parable is all about how we respond to the message of the kingdom. So let's start off with just verses 1 through 9 and walk through exactly what the crowds heard Jesus teach. So first, the parable of the sower. Verse 1, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So this whole episode happens right after Jesus turned away his family, you remember. Chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. He's teaching in a house, and he gets up out of it, and he heads outside, and he sits down on a beach. Of course, Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a beach city, so he just goes outside, walks for five minutes, and sits down on the beach. And then all the crowds gather around him. But the crowds are too big, which should give us a clue. Jesus, despite his opposition in chapter 12, is gathering around him more and more disciples. He is still winning people. The crowd is big. So he gets into a boat and sits down. And he starts to teach the crowd who are standing on the beach. Remember, sitting was the proper posture of teachers at the time. We learned about that at the Sermon on the Mount. That's why he's, he's sitting down in a place of authority. And as we'll see in verse 10, his disciples join him in the boat. Now, this might seem strange. Why would Jesus get into a boat? But again, Capernaum is a beach city. And all along the coastline of Capernaum are alcoves. All along it, alcoves. So, and it's on a, on, a, on a gently sloping embankment heading down into the water. So when Jesus sits down into a boat, he's speaking into like a natural amphitheater where people are standing on the beach and they're able to hear him better. So Jesus gets into a boat to take advantage of this natural land feature. It's also worth mentioning 
that Capernaum is surrounded by farmland. Not only is it a beach town, it's a farm community, especially close to the sea. Verse 3 says that Jesus told the crowd many things in parables. You notice that? Many things in parables. Chapter 13 records a lot of parables for us, but I wonder if Matthew is giving us a clue here that Jesus' discourse is longer than what he's recorded. Jesus taught them many things in parables. So, as I often do, I'm going to call you to use your imagination, your holy, spirit-informed imagination to picture yourself standing in the crowd looking out on, on Jesus, surrounded by his disciples in a boat, seating, sitting down and teaching you. You're in the crowd. You're surrounded by people who are eager to hear Jesus speak. You're surrounded by farmland. Jesus begins with this. And a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Jesus starts with an everyday life story. He's he's literally speaking to many who farm. They would understand what he's talking about. Farming today is a little bit different. Farmers don't take seed in their hand and throw it out onto their land. They have very precise machines that do all of that work, which I was proud to learn about when I lived in Iowa. But in the time of Christ... Farmers would take wheat or barley grains, which were the most common crops in Israel at the time, and they'd get a handful of it, and they'd disperse it onto their land. It's called broadcast sowing. Broadcast sowing, that's what they would do. Then they would plow their field and bury the seed underneath. But in the first example, some of the seed falls along the path. We already saw in chapter 11 that Jesus and his disciples... When they were walking toward the synagogue, they were on a path through grain fields. You remember that? So it was very common at the time for farms to be filled with walking paths. They were picking grain and eating it, and they, they got into a little bit of trouble for that. Modern American farms don't typically have paths like that running through their fields, but this was the case at the time of Christ. So seed, which is thrown out by the farmer, falls onto a hardened path, and the birds come and eat it. He goes on. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. The second soil, Jesus describes, fails again to yield any grain. This time the seed finds dirt, and it germinates quickly, but its roots can't grow deep because the soil is not deep enough. We aren't just talking about soil filled with rocks or gravel here. In Capernaum, often the bedrock was really close to the surface under a shallow layer of dirt. So these grain plants that needed robust roots to survive couldn't put down roots far enough. And so when the sun came, it caused them to dry out and wither away. But then there's a third soil, verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. This soil is contaminated, contaminated with foreign seeds. Even after plowing, the good seed has to compete with these other weeds for nutrients and sunlight, but the weeds are too much for this plant. It's choked, which could mean that it dies, or it could mean that it's 
so malnourished that it can't bear fruit. Then there's the good soil. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The farmers of Capernaum weren't incompetent. They knew how to cast most of their seed into good soil, not along a path, not along or into portions of their field that they knew would be close to bedrock or had problems with weeds in the past. They knew how to find good soil. And depending on how we understand what Jesus means by hundredfold and sixty and thirty, these yields are either decent or miraculous. So if for every bushel of seed that the farmer sows, if it yielded one hundredfold, that's miraculous. That's an exceedingly great yield. An average yield by that way of counting would have been 15-fold. That gives you an idea of how great that yield would have been. A hundredfold would have been miraculous. 30 would have even exceeded expectation. But most likely, Jesus is talking about individual seeds rather than a bushel. So one seed planted could be expected to yield around 50 grains. So 30 is a little below average, 60 is about average, and 100 is above average, great, but not necessarily miraculous. In any case, the soil does its job. Grain is yielded. Remember, you're supposed to be using your imagination. You're listening to Jesus teach, right? Pretend like you haven't heard this parable a million times and that you're standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee hearing Jesus teach from a boat, that you live in a farm community. What has Jesus just done? He's described the process of planting crops. A process pretty well known. Nothing here is surprising. Seeds sometimes fall on suboptimal soil. Thanks for the riveting story, Jesus. But then you hear Jesus say, He who has ears, let him hear. And now you know, this simple story taken from normal life is not what it seems to be. And Jesus gives you no further explanation. The last time Jesus said those words was back in chapter 11, verse 15, when he was talking about John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus was talking about John the Baptist and the kingdom of heaven. He said back there, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, understanding that John the Baptist was the prophesied return of Elijah would not have been abundantly clear to Jesus' listeners. He wasn't literally Elijah, yet he fulfilled the prophecy. And that's why he would say these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now here, in this simple parable about farm life, Jesus says it again. He's encouraging the crowds then to engage, try to understand, to actually listen and get it. But I wonder, I wonder if the crowd standing on the beach in Capernaum that day rose to the occasion. Why would Jesus speak to the crowds like this? If he wanted to teach them something profound about the kingdom, why not just lay it out for them? Why is Jesus being obscure or unclear? Second, let's consider 
what Jesus has to say about the purpose of parables. The disciples are aware that Jesus' story seems to be going over the crowd's head. So they turn to Jesus and they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why aren't you speaking to them more clearly? Why aren't you feeding them directly? Why aren't you just teeing this up for them, Jesus? Why are you speaking to them in parables? In verse 11, Jesus responds, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. So Jesus has turned to his disciples. He's still in the boat, and he's speaking directly to them. Right now, he's even ignoring the crowd. He's only spoken a few sentences of an obscure story to them. But now he turns to the disciples. And the rest of our time this morning is exclusively Jesus' teachings to the disciples in that boat. It's not until verse 24 that he turns back to the crowd. He tells his disciples, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But to them... The crowds, it has not. Here we see the distinction Jesus has made so clear in chapter 12. There are those who are with him inside the house, hearing the teaching, and there are those, even his family, outside the house. There are those to whom it has been given, and to those to whom it has not. The disciples of Jesus, those on the inside, those in the boat with him, have been given the blessing of receiving the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. This is the doctrine of election at work. God has purposed to reveal to his disciples the secrets of the kingdom. But to the crowds, they do not receive that revelation. They only receive a parable. So here's an important truth. No one can know the secrets of the kingdom unless God reveals it to them. Let me say it again in case you missed it. No one can know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven unless God reveals it to them. There is no knowledge to be had about spiritual truth apart from the revelation of God Almighty. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. If we would know the truths of the kingdom of heaven, we must know the king first. We must be a part of the family, in the house, on the boat. And it's all dependent upon the action and will of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, Paul says, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So it's through the Spirit that true knowledge of the kingdom of heaven and of God himself can be had. Jesus is demonstrating this truth in real time to those who are on the boat. To them it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to the crowd it is not. And he goes on. For to, one, to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The knowledge that true disciples of Jesus, true disciples of the kingdom of heaven, the truth that they know will be multiplied 
Once you start on the path of discipleship, the blessings of knowing God multiply more and more. God, Jesus will even say in the Gospel of John that eternal life is knowing God. This is what it means to multiply, to have an abundance, to know God more and more. To the one who has, that is, knowledge of the kingdom, more will be given. Praise the Lord. That's a picture of discipleship. As we grow in our relationships with the Lord, we will grow in wisdom and knowledge. We know him and we know his works more and more and more. But to the one who fails to understand, who fails to heed the call, who has ears but does not hear the word, even what he has will be taken away. The one who has not, that is, the knowledge of the kingdom, even what little he has will be taken. It's tragic but true. If you fail to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you fail to understand the basics, even the little knowledge of God that you have been confronted with, eventually it will be taken away from you. Verse 12 is not an economic statement. It's not a comment on people who are rich getting more and people who are poor losing what they have. The principle that Jesus teaches here can be seen in many aspects of life. But the disciple, this is the point, the disciple who is diligent in growing in their knowledge of the Lord will find an abundance in him. Praise God. But the one with no knowledge of God will will grow more distant from him. Jesus says in verse 13, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus' statement here, I think, overthrows some of our modern assumptions about parables and why Jesus taught in them. Some of us have been taught in the past that Jesus' parables were helpful stories that help illustrate important spiritual truths, that they're supposed to bring greater understanding. But that seems to be the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. It's true that parables are contextualized stories that demonstrate an eternal truth, but it doesn't mean they're supposed to be clear. Jesus is speaking to them in cryptic stories on purpose. For Jesus, a parable is a short story or a word picture or even a simple statement that does not carry its meaning on the surface. That's the whole purpose. The meaning is buried. It demands thought and attention. It demands a careful listener. Jesus says in verse 14 that by speaking in parables, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, which he quotes in its entirety. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, And with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Matthew quotes the the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's known as the Septuagint. That's a word you should know. A historical translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek before the time of Christ. It's called the Septuagint. 
And that would have been the Bible of his time. And it would have been well known to all of his readers. But listen to the English translation of the direct Hebrew, directly from the Hebrew in the ESV. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This is what Isaiah is told to do right after the famous passage where God is looking for a messenger and he says, here I am, Lord, send me, our favorite missionary scripture. The thing that Isaiah is told immediately to do after that is to blind the eyes of the people of Israel, to make their ears heavy. His words and his influence were to make the people dull, deaf, and blind. They were to make the people unable to understand, lest they turn to God and be healed. This was an extension of God's wrath against his people who had turned to the worship of idols and who had forsaken the covenant that they made with God. And now Jesus takes these words in Isaiah 6 and he applies them directly to the crowd on the shore. He too, like Isaiah before him, speaks in such a way that these people hear his words indeed and they they see him teaching, but they don't understand. So there's one direct application of this truth and it may not be easy to hear. Being exposed to the words of Jesus and failing to understand is the outworking of God's wrath against sin. He has revealed his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Paul says in Romans 1. They indeed hear, they indeed see, but they fail to understand. The parables of Jesus intentionally divides the crowd intentionally between two groups of people, those who have been given the gift of understanding and those who have not. It's the doctrine of election. God sovereignly chooses whom he will save based solely on his good, gracious will. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful truth because none of us would have any understanding at all without the action of God. Look at verse 16. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are your eyes. For they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples of Jesus are receiving a blessing never received before. They have received the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews says at the end of his famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Do you remember the conclusion of that famous Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11? He's just finished talking about the faithfulness of many Old Testament saints. But then he says in verse 39, this is Hebrews eleven thirty-nine, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had providing something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Wow. The Old Testament saints who were faithful are perfected in your faith and in your knowledge. The prophets and the righteous people longed to know what God would do to solve the problem of sin and how he would establish his kingdom. 
They wanted to know who would be the promised offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15. They wanted to know who would sit on the throne of David. Guess who gets to know that? You do. They didn't get to find out in their time. They were given glimpses and visions, but not full knowledge. But now it has been revealed in the mysteries of the gospel. Do you realize what a precious gift you have in that knowledge? That God has perfected his love in his son, Jesus? And so now, instead of imagining yourself as a part of the crowd on the beach, imagine yourself in the boat. For the Christians in this room today, for you who have confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, you hear and see. Praise the Lord, you understand what a blessing beyond expression to live in a time after the empty tomb, amen? That is our reality today. The purpose of the parables is to draw a line between those who would understand and those who would not. That's the purpose. Jesus could have taught things more straightforward, and often he does. He could have even given them a bulleted list of all the things about the kingdom he wanted them to know. But this is not how Jesus decided to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to the crowd. And so the prerequisite for understanding isn't a high IQ. It's not many degrees or professional experience. The prerequisite for understanding the teachings of Jesus is faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. Commitment to Jesus comes before understanding the parables. Commitment to Jesus comes before understanding his parables. That's why he explains the parable of the sower only to those in the boat who are his disciples. So third, the parable explained. Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. Of course, at this point, we should understand that by hear, Jesus doesn't merely mean listen to the sound of my voice. He means understand. Right? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So the seed being sown by the sower is the word of the kingdom. And as we'll find out in verse 37, the son of man is the one who sows the good seed. So the sower is Jesus. The seed is the word of the kingdom which directly connects back to verse 11 and the secrets of the kingdom. So we can say it another way. The seed in the parable is the gospel of King Jesus. When anyone hears these words and doesn't understand them, the result is the evil one comes and snatches the seed away. So one might not understand, might not grasp the words of the kingdom for several reasons. It may be that they are callous to spiritual truths, or it may be that they are careless in their listening. Maybe even they directly oppose even entertaining the idea of religion. In any case, the one who has not loses even what he has. The evil one, Satan, comes and snatches it away. The seed lying on the hard path of a callous heart is eaten up by the devil. And so the first person is neutralized. No threat. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation 
where persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. A tale as old as time, right? An eager listener receives the good news of the kingdom and is excited, but his enthusiasm is based solely upon his surroundings. If you've been wondering why, I would take the youth group to the parable of the sower after the Saturday night gospel message. This is why. It's easy to believe the gospel when the music is loud and when the lights are low and when your friends walk up to the altar with you. It's easy to believe the gospel when it seems like the fun thing to do or when you are brought to tears by the music. But once life gets hard, or once someone puts you down and ridicules you for your beliefs, it's not so fun anymore. In fact, the gospel starts to become a repugnant thing, something that was good for a time, but now is unnecessary. The word translated here as falls away is literally something more like trips or stumbles, which is an idiom for taking offense. Jesus refers to himself as a stumbling block for this reason. He causes offense. What was once received with joy has now turned into something offensive. It was not uncommon for me to see teenagers believe the gospel for a time, but then come to consider belief in Jesus as immature, unrealistic, unscientific. It became offensive to them as if They had better morals than what they found in the scriptures. A tale as old as time. The person who is like the rocky soil had a faith based solely on their surroundings. Once the people who influence them toward the gospel are out of the picture, like a plant without roots, their spiritual life withers. The root of the gospel didn't reach into their heart. They never fostered the disciplines of a disciple They never truly followed Jesus. Their relationship with him was never more than skin deep, a light association. They were not transformed by the good news. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. In my experience, it was incredibly common for teenagers to fall into the category of the rocky soil. But the thorny soil, I think, speaks more to adult life than any other group. There are many who hear the word of the gospel and who receive it. The gospel even seems to take root in their life and it starts to grow. But there are many things, many things that pull our attention The cares of the world are numerous. We have bills to pay and we have mouths to feed. There's never enough time to do what we really want to do. There's always more hours to work, more recitals to attend, and the housework must get done. Not to mention all of the things that cause us great anxiety, right? How are we going to afford a new house? How can I fix the broken relationships in my family? How am I going to be able to retire at 65? Add on top of that the state of the world. Everything seems to always be burning down. There's always a new election cycle. And sometimes pandemics even break out. The worries of life so easily carry us away from the word. 
They choke the word out. There's no time left. No room left in our lives for a real relationship with Jesus. But the worries of life aren't the only thorns that seem to grow in this garden. Jesus specifically mentions the deceitfulness of riches, the grind, keeping up with the Joneses, greed and the pursuit of mammon. They choke the word out of our hearts. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But if we would just slow down and make time, we'd find that the cares of the world are under the control of the creator of the universe. We'd see that he provides everything that we need to follow him. Both the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches are powerless when we consider the greatness and power of God. They are actually lies that choke out the truth. I like this quote from John Calvin as he comments on this passage. He says, each of us ought to endeavor to tear the thorns out of his heart if we do not want the word of God to be choked. For there is not one of us whose heart is not filled with vast quantities and as I may say, a thick forest of thorns. Is there something in your life choking out the word? Something that has torn your attention away from the Lord and his word? Money? Worry? What thorns need to be removed before they choke out your spiritual life? You are in danger in thorny soil. Notice that Jesus explicitly says that this crop which is choked by thorns proves unfruitful. There may be roots. There may be a stalk that grows. But man, man, would it hurt to hear at the end that the Savior of the world talks to you and says your life proved unfruitful because the kingdom was choked out by the cares of the world. Instead, it would be wonderful to hear in the end about the fruit that we bore for the kingdom. That's what the good soil does in verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, and another 60, and in another 30. Genuine Christians will all have varying impacts on the kingdom of heaven, but we will all have a genuine impact. Christians will all bear fruit for the increase of the kingdom. Praise God. Billy Graham or St. Augustine might be in the 100-fold category. But how might the Lord use you to multiply the kingdom? The seed of the gospel blooms into kingdom increase. We should all desire for that to be the case in our lives. In the end, the parable of the sower describes four responses to the news of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not an exhaustive list, but we can easily find ourselves here, can't we? Even looking back on your life, maybe you identify with one soil over another. The parable encourages us ultimately to endure, to persevere to the end. The youth who heard the good news of the gospel needed to hear the perseverance of the saints. They needed to hear the importance of endurance in Christ because life is not so simple. Life gets in the way. 
The gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is believed by faith. And it is a gift from God to you. Praise the Lord. The understanding of the gospel, growth in the spirit and endurance are all gifts of grace from the Lord to you. The question that Jesus puts to the disciples sitting in the boat is which soil would you prove to be? That's the question they are left to ponder. Those on the beach, the large crowd would abandon Christ in the end. Some would leave that day and never believe. Their hearts would be hardened like a hard path. Some would follow Jesus for a while while he healed them and while he gave them miraculous bread. But when it got too hard, they would turn and they would flee. Even one in the boat, Judas, would give in to the deceitfulness of riches and would be choked out by the word, by by the thorns of the deceitfulness of riches. The gospel would not live in his heart. But the other disciples would prove to be good soil. So the same question is before us. Which soil will you prove to be? By God's grace, we will produce fruit for the increase of the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Let that be your prayer today, that the Lord would give you perseverance to the end, to run the race until it is finished. Let's pray. Lord, there are many things that tear us away from you, that get in the way. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that we in this room would be good soil for your word, that we would desire to see the increase of your kingdom above all else. Lord, that the thorns that we are aware of in our lives, we would tear them out by your power and that we would pursue you more than anything else. Father, we are so grateful to you for your grace and for revealing to us the secrets of the kingdom this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.